And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then he heard the, and then when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Again, we'd like to welcome you to Christ Central Church. We're glad that you could join us this morning. My name is Josh Kim again. I'm an assistant pastor. And today we have a guest speaker in our summer. Uh, We have a series of guest speakers who come to share the pulpit with us. And our guest speaker's name is Reverend Dr. Mike Park, and you could read more about his bio, his background again, by going to our online bulletin and access his bio there. But as I would like to uh, not only talk about his bio, but introduce him to you, I'd love to start by saying, in the 90s, there was a song that a lot of us really liked called Like Mike. And if you know what that is, it starts by saying, sometimes I dream that he is me, like Mike. I want to be like Mike. And that is a song that talks about Michael Jordan, uh, perhaps now debatable, but it was undisputed at the time. The greatest player of all time, as many try to emulate his moves, wanting to be like Michael Jordan on the basketball court. Perhaps now it's Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, dare I say Trey Young, and others uh, these days. But, but for me, like Mike had a different meaning for me. Like Mike for me was I wanted to be like Pastor Mike Park. As a pastor intern in the church that he served at, as an assistant pastor, as a youth pastor, I always wanted to be like Mike. I wanted to be like Mike in the ways he preached the gospel, in the ways he exegeted the text, in the ways he cared for the flock, in the ways he led the church. But more so than that, I wanted to be like Mike in the ways 
He loved his family, his wife Grace, who's joining us, as well as their four children, Lydia, Hannah, James, and Daniel. I wanted to be Mike, like Mike in the ways he loved and his children and cared for them. I also wanted to be like Mike in the ways he demonstrated his humility towards us when he often shares his struggles, his failures as a pastor. But more so than that, I wanted to be like Mike in the ways he loved, loved his church, in the ways he loved, loved God's people, and the ways that he loved his Lord and Savior. So I'm so excited that he will come and share the word of God with us. So without further ado, let's welcome him with Christ Central round of applause. No hug? He's just going to walk the other way? <laughs> After all of that, he's going to abandon me up here. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I think the Spirit of God is certainly here because I'm going to talk a lot about basketball. And so uh, the fact that Pastor Josh mentioned Michael is uh, the Spirit sort of weaving together a theme. Hopefully we'll do more than just talk about Michael. We'll talk about Jesus. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we come now and we ask that you would speak to us. We are hungry for your word more than we know. And Jesus, you are the living word, the bread, manna from heaven. And we ask that you would feed us, strengthen our faith, so that we, your people, called by your name, will engage not only one another but this city in beautiful and compelling ways so that the world, by seeing the body, will see Christ himself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Who is the greatest of all time? The greatest of all time, or the GOAT discussion, dominates family gatherings, at least mine, friend reunions, barbershops, and sports bars all over this country. Is it Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson? Is it Jim Brown or Walter Payton? Is it LeBron or MJ? My friends and I debate this somewhat regularly because that's what guys do. And not too long ago, my friend, at least I thought he was my friend, let off with the heretical words, I used to think MJ was the greatest. But now I think LeBron is the greatest. I almost killed him on the spot, but I did not. I've never heard such words come out of his mouth. What an apostate, I thought. And that's when I began to remind him of MJ's greatest accomplishments, at least in my view. Some of you may recall that after his junior year at UNC, he, along with a bunch of college students, were getting ready for the Olympics. And the NBA greats wanted to play with them, to make a statement, to embarrass them on a broad stage. So they decided that they would not only play one but nine exhibition games with these college kids. The team included the likes of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and so on and so forth, these household names that have become Hall of Famers in the NBA world. And everyone thought, surely, the NBA All-Stars would embarrass these kids, but not when Michael is one of them. 
Listen, for those of you who are hearing this story for the first time, the college kids not won just one or two games. They actually won all nine exhibition games against the NBA greats, led by none other than MJ himself. So who is the greatest of all time? MJ, period. End of discussion. Let's close in prayer. No, just kidding. <laughs> Many years ago in the passage that was read to us earlier today, the disciples had their goat discussion. But it wasn't about an athlete or even a rabbi or one of the would-be Messiah figures. It was about them. Every one of the disciples was making the case that they were the greatest. Now, when my 8- and 10-year-old boys and their neighborhood friends argue about who is the greatest football player in the neighborhood, it's cute. They'll say things like, well, I'm the fastest. Well, I'm the tallest. I can throw further than you. It's adorable. But grown-ups, especially grown-ups, living and walking and witnessing Jesus, his humility, his love, his servanthood, to be talking about them being the greatest just seems a bit odd, doesn't it? But it didn't end with just a discussion no, they jockey for position and eventually lobby for office. And that's when Jesus pulled them aside and set them straight and taught them a better way, a different way, a way of the kingdom, a way of servanthood. So let's take a look at two things together this morning. First, let's look at the shame of man. In Washington, D.C., where I currently pastor, Power takes on a visible nature. The statues of political and military figures line the streets as reminders of greatness, of power. And Rome, the great republic, was no different. So when James and John asked for positions of power, they were following the script of the world, at least the world's definition of greatness. Now, there's much to be said about their request, but let's look at several possible reasons that, they may have, that may have prompted their request. First is confusion. Right before James and John make their request, Jesus spoke of his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection for the third and final time in verses 32 to 34. The contrast is intentional. Mark wants us to see the difference between Jesus, who is going lower and lower and lower, and the disciples who are arguing, fighting, and grasping for power, position, and privilege. Perhaps they were confused when Jesus spoke of suffering and death because it didn't fit their definition of the Messiah. After all, they believed he would liberate God's people by overthrowing Rome's heavy yoke. But that is hard to believe given that in verse 32, the disciples were amazed. 
not because Jesus just performed a miracle, but they were amazed at his resolute determination to go to Jerusalem despite what awaited him there. And the fact that they were afraid not only for him, but also for themselves gives us more than a hint to say that they were not confused about this crescendo that awaited them in Jerusalem. So maybe it's not confusion. Maybe it was faith. Perhaps they weren't confused at all. Maybe they heard Jesus loud and clear and had great faith in that last bit of what he had to say, his resurrection. And they believed that the resurrection of Christ would be the coronation of Jesus' earthly kingship. And so they jumped at the first opportunity to campaign for themselves. After all, James and John were in the starting lineup with Peter. They were always the three that traveled with Jesus, even when the rest were put aside. If faith was their motive, then their faith was incomplete and misguided. That's why Jesus called his disciples together to explain in verse 43 and following that greatness in the kingdom of God looks very different than greatness in the world. More on that later. Third, maybe it's not confusion. Maybe it's not faith. Maybe it's just their misguided desire. Their request reveals their desire for power. And let's be honest, it's not just the two of them. It's the rest of them. They all wanted the same thing, and that's why when they found out about James and John's side conversation with Jesus, they became indignant, angry that they got Jesus' ear before they did. And this wasn't the first time that they argued about their place in the kingdom. They argued about who was greatest, who's going to have most power, Who's going to have most influence? Who would be at the right and the left hand of Jesus in the coming earthly kingdom? As a matter of fact, back in Mark chapter 9, and I'm sure on many different occasions, the disciples argued about this very topic. Now, before we dismiss the disciples, let's be honest. Maybe it's not power for you, but it's comfort, it's pleasure security, intimacy. We all have that one thing that we long for. And the point is this, that we desire that one thing so much that we're willing to scheme, plot, and work very hard to get it. And if you're really spiritual, you're willing to even pray and obey to somehow earn God's favor so that he will bless you with it. Our desire for these things is good, let me just say. Our desire for things like comfort, pleasure, security, intimacy, these are all good things, but over-desire for even good thing is sin because we make an idol out of it, as Pastor Tim Keller has said many times. And let me propose this thought. James and John's desire for power and our desire for comfort Pleasure, security, and love are desire for what was lost in Eden. C.S. Lewis is helpful here. He says, these things, and you can fill in the blank with whatever idol that the world upholds as the great thing that promises Eden. 
These things are not the thing itself, but a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. To put it differently, our desire for power, comfort, pleasure, security, and love are surface-level desires. They are not what we really want. Underneath all of that, at the core of our being, is a longing for the source of all that is good, true, and right, the ultimate reality, what everything points us to, which is God himself. You see, when James and John said, we want these positions of power and privilege, deep in their heart, they were saying, we long to recover what was lost and needed. They wanted that relationship with the Lord. God, who is the source of all of these things. Why? The Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts. Or as Maya Angelou put it, everyone born comes from the creator, trailing wisps of glory. That's who we all are. Why is it that our hearts constantly produce idols? That we bow before this or that idol? because we are made to worship the one who is the ultimate reality of what our hearts long for. The great tragedy of sin is that it did not remove our desire for beauty. It didn't remove our desire for intimacy or glory. No, we carry the pain of unmet longings with us. Rather, the great tragedy of sin is that it offers us cheap substitutes that cannot satisfy. And that's why ever since Eden, we have replaced the beauty of God with physical beauty. There's a reason why the plastic surgeons are making the big bucks and the scheme to get skinny without having to do anything still works somehow. We have rejected the truth for a lie. We have substituted the intimacy with God with sexual intimacy, and we have exchanged the glory of God with the glory of man. And we have turned to these things. We have bowed before them. We have offered them our hearts, and we have in so many ways said, please deliver me from this pitiful life. That's what idolatry is. But we do this in hope that we can recreate Eden, but we all know how that ends. I love Jesus' response. What do you want me to do for you? Do you see what Jesus is doing? James and John ultimately want to restore Eden. That's what they want. And Jesus knows that power isn't going to get them there. And he knows that the amount of money in our bank account or the amount of influence we have in this city or the kind of network we have here in this church is not going to get us there. And so he slows us down and he wants us to reflect deeper, to peel back the outer layers and to come face to face with our hearts and the unmet longing that we carry with us. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Do you really think that if I give you more power that you're going to restore Eden? That if I make you more beautiful, 
that somehow if you lose 10 pounds that you're going to get what your heart really longs for. What do you want me to do for you? Think about, think about it before you ask. You see, he knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. And he listens. He engages. He is present. He is a gracious Savior. And after hearing their request, Jesus responds, you do not know what you are asking. Those words are true today as it was back then. Can you endure the suffering and death I am about to endure? And even so, the seats on the right and on the left are not mine to give, but the Father's. Do you know what you are asking? I praise God that he does not grant my every desire and that he does not answer my every prayer. You see, it is his mercy that he withholds answers, that he says no sometimes. Why? Because sin has disordered our loves so that it is no longer God, others, and self, but it is self, self, and self. And we will do just about anything and everything to get what we want, including using Jesus at times to our gain. This is the shame of man, that we have been homeless, if you will, kicked out of Eden, Sin is offered and nothing but substitutes. And now, in the harsh world called reality, we are left to fend for ourselves. And we continue to turn inwards, looking for the things that only God can give. James and John thought power would quiet their restless hearts. But St. Augustine is right, our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest in him. How about you? What lie have you latched onto? What promise have you clung to? What is your telos that you're gutting for? What's on constant repeat? If I can only get it, my life would be better. I would be happy. I would be satisfied. That, the Bible tells us, is a shame of man. And for those of us who are in Christ, you have not only secured eternity, but even now, you see glimpses of glory that's promised to us. And as we turn our face to the Lord, in him we find everything our hearts need and want to be still before him. You see, the gospel offers a lot more than you think. And even today, Christ invites you to come and find in him what your hearts long for. That you would put aside the lies and the false promises that are constantly repeated in this world and to come and find him to be everything your heart longs for. Let's 
move to our second and final point. I know you guys are used to like an hour sermon, I, I've been told. But uh, one of the blessings of a guest preacher is that you get to go home early, okay, before your tummy starts growling. So I'm, I'm going to get you there, okay? Second, the glory of Christ. Starting with verse 43, Jesus redefines greatness. In a broken world, power is often associated with a certain race, age, class, and beauty, to name a few. And sadly, we leverage all of these things not to serve and care for those in the margins, but we use these things and leverage these things to dominate, to oppress, and to marginalize the other. And this is not just out there in the world but the church is guilty of this also. Let me just say, as an Asian American, I find myself on the receiving end of this constantly, where I am pushed to the margins as a perpetual foreigner because of my race. Someone from Europe who barely speaks English but fits the American profile could land in Charlotte Airport in 10 minutes, and if we were to line him up and me up, you would think, he is American, and maybe I can speak 10 words of English. We've been programmed to buy into this way of thinking. And this is just part of the entire system, the culture of the world. And this is how we operate. And Jesus basically says, eh, yeah, not like that. That is not how the church works. Let me just give you a couple more examples of what it means to be an Asian American because I know Pastor Josh is so nice. He's not going to come up here and air out all of his grievances here in the church. In fact, he has never said anything to that effect. In all our conversations, he has done nothing but praise you. And he, is, uh, he loves his church community. So whatever it is you're doing, it's working. Okay, so I commend him and his ministry to you. Okay. This idea of being a perpetual foreigner is really tiring. Can I just say? Let me just get on my soapbox for a couple of minutes. People ask me, where are you from? And I say, I am from Washington, D.C. And that's when I get puzzled looks because somehow things don't compute. D.C.? But you're Asian. Like, how can that be? Like, what? Like, aren't you from China or something? I said, well, my ancestors are from Korea, but I've been in D.C. for a very long time. And not, not too long ago, my, my dear wife was uh, engaging someone, and uh, I, I think they were trying to be encouraging, and so I want to give it uh, the benefit of doubt, but uh, this person said to her, wow, your English is very good. I hope so. She was born and raised in Virginia. She has never left America. Like, never. Look, the world is going to operate a certain way. And can I just say this? Let's not politics hijack this. Because at the end of the day, we all know that politics is not the answer. Love is. And if we hide behind the veneer of political parties and philosophies and, and why that's wrong, but this is right, and divide over that, we're not going to get anywhere. 
if you strip an individual of their humanity and put on some label like Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, it's easy to slander. It's easy to divide. It's a very simple justification at that point. But that must not happen in the church because the right will never be right enough and the left will never be left enough. And the kingdom of God is not somewhere in the middle. No, kingdom of God is all of that and more because Jesus claims all of that as his and he calls the church to be the church, to be the third way, to be different, to be the kingdom. And so as the church, we must reflect our Savior who is full of grace and truth in such compelling ways that the earthly arguments that are used against this community and how you all come together to love and serve one another would have no teeth, really. That people will be lining outside of the doors to check out what's going on in here and daily being added to this community, those who are worshiping Christ. I pray that that would happen here. Jesus says to the disciples who are jockeying for positions of power and privilege that this is not how it should be in the kingdom of God. Jesus says in verse 44, whoever wants to be first among you must be the servant of all. He redefines greatness. Greatness is not abusing power to lord it over people, to oppress or to dismiss those who don't have it. Greatness is leveraging power, influence, and whatever resource and gifts that God has given to you to serve and love the other, period. Jesus does not qualify his statement to say that if they're of your race or ethnicity or party, then you can do these things. No, he says greatness, true greatness, is going lower and lower and lower until you cannot go any further to love and serve the other. And he is the ultimate example of greatness. He says in verse 45 that even the Son of Man, this title that Jesus used very often, which comes from the book of Daniel, that proves his deity. Remember in the Old Testament, God the Father said that I will not share my glory with another because for him to share his glory with anyone else would be sin, would be idolatry. He would be worshiping someone other than himself. But with Jesus in Daniel, the Father shares his glory and he gives him kingdom, power, dominion, and authority forever and ever and ever. Why? Because Jesus is God himself. And this very God, man, says he did not come to be served, but to serve. But he doesn't end there, does he? He could have said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And that would cause a collective gasp among his followers to think that the Son of Man, Christ himself, the Messiah, came not to be served, but to serve. Wow. But Jesus continues and says, no, I actually came to do more than that. When they saw him wrap his towel around his waist to wash their feet, 
They couldn't believe what was going on. But Jesus said, I came to do more than that. And the very hands that washed the feet would be stretched on the cross. As he died, I went to hell and back for them. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom to buy you back. His purpose in coming to earth was to give all of himself. He knew that he would pour himself out completely and utterly for his bride, the church. And by doing so, we might see the full extent of the Father's love for us. Later in Philippians chapter 2, Apostle Paul, reflecting upon the life of Christ, borrows a popular hymn at the time and basically speaks of Christ, the one who is the very image of God, who did not consider himself equal with God, but Lord himself. He took on human flesh, became a servant, and died a criminal's death. He went lower and lower to serve and love his people. And that's why the Father exalted him to the highest place. But hear me, the glory of Christ is not his exalted state. The glory of Christ, as we read in the Gospel of John, is the cross. Now, why would that be? It's because on the cross, Christ lowered himself to the uttermost in order to demonstrate the Father's love and to serve us, his people, so that as we behold him, the crucified Savior, our hearts will be moved and that we would behold him in worship and in awe and praise. You see, that last song we sang, thank you for singing that, by the way, that can only happen if you see Christ. If you try to do that on your own, you're not going to get very far. But if you see Christ, his humility, his suffering, his death, his love for you, then your heart cannot but be moved to say, here I am. I give my life to you. Take it all, all of it, everything. Several years ago, as Grace Downtown was beginning our conversations on all things race and what it means for us to live out what we believe is a gospel mandate, to love as Christ loved us, to serve as Christ served us, to be that servant that Christ was for us, one of the elders honestly and humbly said, feel like I'm always having to sacrifice. I feel like I'm always having to take the low place. I feel like I'm always having to turn the other cheek. When's it going to be my turn? And perhaps you can sympathize. You feel like you keep lowering yourself, but there seems to be no end. And I said to him, brother, Thank you so much for your honesty. It's hard, isn't it? 
it really is hard to be like Christ. But it's because Christ has done exactly that for us. We can and must do that for others. Christ is not just the example. He is also our motivation. When we understand deeply the gospel and what it means at the everyday level, then we can find all the strength we need in order to live out the gospel in becoming the very expression of Christ himself here in this church community and in this city. As Christians, we're called to take the low place. And I know it's hard. It really is. We're called to take the low place, to love and serve even the least of these, but that's what Christ has done for us. And when we do that, the world sees Christ through his body. And so when people outside of faith community, they come and see this community at work, I pray and hope that they would say, I see Christ. We must leverage our power to welcome, to serve and love the other because that's what Christ calls us to. And that, I would say, my brothers and sisters, is our glory as Christ followers. Our glory is not our accomplishments. It's not our degree. It's not our beauty. It's not our influence. No, our glory is our humble service that we offer to one another and to the city. That we, like Christ, we would use our power, we'll leverage everything to love even our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, reach across political race and class lines to be the very expression of Christ. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. once said. Everybody can be great because anyone can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you. Thank you for meeting with us even today, enlivening our hearts to believe in the gospel. And we pray that our worship would not end here, but that we would continue our worship in between Sundays, that we would take what we do here, what we long to do here, and bring it to our families and workplace, our communities and neighborhoods, that we, as your people, who have been brought from the kingdom of death to life, we would be glimpses of Christ, the fragrance of life to the people that you have brought into our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.